Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today is Congressman Mike Gallagher. He is a Republican representing the 8th District of Wisconsin, which includes the city of Green Bay. Congressman Gallagher has an interesting profile. He has a PhD in international relations and is a veteran. And it emerged in our conversation that we actually both attended the same security studies grad school program at around the same time. He's very thoughtful, and I think this conversation offers listeners some key insights into how an emerging leader in Republican foreign policy circles considers the U.S. role in the world, the value of multilateralism in international institutions, and the role of a values-based foreign policy. We kick off discussing Iran and the Middle East before having a broader conversation about U.S. foreign policy writ large. Now, if you're a regular listener to the show, you know, my own political and foreign policy views are apparent. I don't hide them. Uh, You also know that I don't do adversarial interviews. I don't debate people on this show. Rather, I find more value in drawing out the perspective of the person I'm interviewing. And I think that's why you'll find this conversation with Congressman Gallagher so useful in terms of understanding how a key Republican foreign policy maker sees the world. A quick note before we start, the bonus episodes I've posted this week for premium subscribers includes my conversations with Joseph Nye and Carolyn Miles. Joseph Nye is the international relations theorist who famously coined the term soft power. And Carolyn Miles is the longtime CEO of the global humanitarian organization Save the Children. In both conversations, they trace their career paths and tell stories from their life and career. To access those episodes and other rewards, like a complimentary subscription to my News Clips service, please visit patreon.com slash globaldispatches or follow the links on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now here is my conversation with Congressman Mike Gallagher. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I was intrigued to see that uh, you've listed uh, yourself as an Eisenhower aficionado on the uh, on, on the Twitter handle. It's great. I always like when people self-identify that way. That's, that's right. It's a very cool thing to do these days with the kids. Yeah. Well, it's funny. When I, I drove cross-country, when I moved from D.C. to Denver, and I made a point of stopping in Abilene, Kansas, at the uh, Eisenhower Presidential Library, I, I went to like the uh, little lady behind the counter and asked her if they had like an original copy of the Adams for Peace speech. And she looked at me kind of bemused and befuddled. Um, 
But it's interesting. This is a good entry point in our conversation. I, I actually found out just last week that it was through the Atoms for Peace program that Eisenhower started that Iran got its first nuclear technology transfer for medical purposes back in, in the 1950s. And sort of here we are today. Um, here, so, here I thought I was an Eisenhower nerd. You have out nerded me on Eisenhower. <laughs> and as someone who's spent two months of his life in Abilene living out of the Holiday Inn Express and doing archival research, that it's not an easy thing to do. I salute you, and I well, bow to your Eisenhower superiority. You you may have even seen that elusive copy of the Adams for Peace speech. <laughs> um, so we're speaking at a moment of, of profound crisis, it seems, between the U.S. And, and Iran. So I just wanted to ask you off the bat, um, would you support uh, some sort of congressional authorization or mandate um, that Congress uses its authority to authorize the use of military force against Iran or somehow compels the administration to to go to Congress? Um, it depends entirely on the content of that authorization. I do not believe that the administration currently has the authority to conduct a sustained campaign against Iran. I think under the War Powers Resolution, should certainly should one of our assets be attacked, the president would have a time-stamped uh, flexibility to uh, respond in kind, but however would eventually have to seek congressional authorization. And I do think a response, particularly after the downing of our drone asset, I do think some sort of response is warranted. In general, I feel like if the president is going to conduct any sort of military uh, action, um, unless there is a direct attack against the homeland that allows him to repel a sudden invasion, to use a phrase that was used uh, in by the framers and by Madison in particular, he has to go to Congress to make the case and get congressional authorization. Now, the War Powers Resolution from 73 makes that a bit more complicated and difficult, but I don't think currently he has the statutory authority to conduct sustained operations against Iran. But a strike such as the one envisioned after the uh, downing of the drone would not have qualified for requiring uh, authorization? Well, I think he I think he could have made the argument that it was permissible as a response under the War Powers Resolution. But if he's going if he were to continue to conduct lethal operations against Iran, then he'd have to get congressional authorization. Now, the reason this gets difficult, because the Obama administration we saw in their um, campaign against Iraq would basically trigger separate War Powers Resolutions clocks every time they conducted a new kinetic operation in Iraq, effectively extending the clock into infinity. And I think it's always a wise decision when there's some sort of um, ambiguity here for the president to come to Congress and seek authorization. So by the time this is published, which, you know, we're speaking on Wednesday, this could be published uh, on, on Thursday, Iran may have actually taken a step to to violate the, the JCPOA. Um, what right now is your would you advise as, as sort of appropriate diplomatic course of action for the United States? I do think we need to reinforce the parameters that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced uh, in a speech a few months ago, um, identifying 12 parameters for what a new and better deal would look like, such as giving a full account of prior military dimensions of Iran's program, closing its heavy water reactor, giving the IEA full access to its program for inspections and verifications. Now, these may be seen as impossible parameters to meet, but they're certainly a sensible starting point for any sort of renewed negotiation with Iran. But in order to drive Iran to the negotiating table, however impractical that may seem right now, we are going to need to continue our policy of maximum pressure. So really, the most important line of effort, in addition to what we decide to do 
uh, on the military side of the equation is to continue this policy of increasing slowly and steadily economic pressure against the regime in Iran. And I think most importantly in this process, we need to remember that while the situation is volatile, while Iran is particularly skilled at acting with proxies and retaining plausible deniability, uh, we hold the upper hand. We are the stronger power. Uh, we are a superpower dealing with sort of a third-rate economic power that is really in a weak position. Iran is lashing out right now, in part because it's, the regime is facing pressure from its own people um, to stop spending money on terrorist proxies. In many cases, we've seen people come into the streets of Tehran over the last two years demanding that. And really, we've seen the regime in general and the Supreme Leader in particular enrich himself uh, at the expense of the Iranian people. So I do think we have the right approach with maximum pressure, but it's going to require patience. It's going to require willpower. And it's going to require us enhancing our diplomatic efforts to keep our allies on the same page. So, so those diplomatic efforts, interestingly, were on display today at the Security Council, where sort of through uh, just circumstance and coincidence, there's a regularly scheduled meeting on the JCPOA, which, you know, of course, was endorsed by the Security Council. And you know, the French ambassador said something interesting. You know, he, he you know, kind of restated what we all know to be the French position, which is that the JCPOA is a cornerstone of the international non-proliferation regime and, and should be preserved. Um, so I guess my question is, how do you balance alienating key allies like France, like Germany, also on the Security Council, um, who consider this to be such an important key pillar for their own security against the policy that you just advised, the one of maximum pressure, which um, includes um, pressuring European country, countries and, and companies uh, against doing business with Iran. How do you sort of, how do you balance those two priorities? It's a difficult balance to be sure. And I think anyone in public office telling you that it's easy um, has never spent any time studying the issue. And I'm not here to tell you that it is easy, but I do think we saw a few things in the wake of the JCPOA being signed. One, all the promises of European businesses immediately inking agreements with the Iranian regime and businesses flooding into the country, that actually didn't happen. It didn't happen as rapidly as some predicted. And then two, when we got out of the JCPOA, while there was a great deal of concern among our allies and there were uh, protestations among the p5 plus one and certainly those protestations continued today we didn't see the total chaos that many proponents of the deal predicted and i think that ultimately shows us something which is obvious that when given a choice between doing business with the united states and doing business with iran the choice be can't becomes quite clear that's not to say we should be insensitive to the concerns of our european allies because our economic efforts, our military efforts, any sort of thing we want to do in the world stage is going to be stronger when we do it in concert with our allies. But even where we have a disagreement with our allies on this issue, I think we need to be making the case in good faith every single day in as many diplomatic fora as humanly possible um, to our allies about the nature of the regime, about the failure of the whole theory of the JCPOA, that getting the regime hooked on cash would somehow moderate its behavior in the region because we've seen the exact opposite. And three, now we have the Iranian regime saying explicitly that they are going to violate the terms of the deal. And in the unscur that the Obama administration put forward to seal the deal, there is a snapback clause in the UN Security Council resolution that basically allows us to raise this question as to whether Iran is in compliance with the deal. And if not, all of the six previous UN Security Council resolutions that we waived in order to implement the JCPOA go back into force. So a difficult argument with our allies, to be sure. Um, but again, I, I think we 
have the strong hand to play in this. And I think what we've seen in the last few months is that there is a path forward. So, you know, you've referenced, you know, the value, I think, of, of multilateralism when you uh, talked about some of the, the, the snap pack provisions that were included in the original JCPOA, which is, you know, enshrined in that Security Council resolution. I'm wondering if you can talk a little more broadly about um, about how you consider multilateral alliances and multilateralism in general and the value that you attach to institutions like the United Nations. You know, I'm, I'm aware you're a Republican congressman representing uh, Green Bay and, and the surrounding areas. What do those institutions mean for you and mean for your constituents? Well, I, I, I sense there is a sentiment right now, and maybe it's on the right more than the left, although it's, it's fluctuated throughout American history, um, that is growing a bit more hostile to multilateral institutions. And on one hand, I understand to the extent we are ever surrendering our own sovereignty to multilateral institutions like the UN, um, uh, you know, take your pick, IMF. Well, that's probably not the right thing to do. But I would say a few things in defense of the rules-based international order. One, it's, a, it's an order that we built. The United States, in many cases, was the author of all of these institutions. And we determined at that time that it was in our interest to bring the world into a forum for cooperation. And I think that remains true today. Like any nation, we retain the ability to do what's necessary to defend ourselves and to defend our sovereignty. But certainly, unless we want to be in the business of doing everything by ourselves, which ends up, ends up being more costly and more complicated over the long term, we have to find a way to work by with and through our allies. By the way, I mean, if you sort of buy the premise of the national security strategy and the national defense strategy, which I actually think there's an underreported story that no one is disputing that premise. I mean, it's remarkable the extent to which the Trump administration has shifted the entire focus of the national security strategy. And by that, I mean, the focus is now on great power competition with China uh, and Russia, and we are deprioritizing counterterrorism operations, and by extension, the Middle East, which makes the Iran dilemma a little bit more difficult. Um, if you buy into that premise, you are left with the conclusion that really our most valuable asset uh, in this competition with the Chinese, beyond our founding values and just the overall environment in America, is that we have friends, partners, and allies around the world that want to work with us. China does not have this. But Chinese academics, I think there was a Chinese academic in 2011 who wrote a, an op-ed in the New York Times saying the core of competition between the U.S. and China will come down to who has better friends. I think that's absolutely true. And I think we need to be a bit more uh, – certainly those of us in public office need to do a better job of explaining to people in places like northeast Wisconsin as to why it's useful for us to work, work through the U.N. Uh, work through the INF, the value of NATO, right? Because these arguments against these institutions, they're not new arguments. We've had them multiple times before. I mean, just look at the debate over the Mansfield Amendment, which is the Democratic majority leader trying to cut NATO in half, and Eisenhower's right-hand man, Andrew Goodpaster, this was after the Eisenhower administration, had to go to Congress and make the case not to cut NATO. There really is nothing new under the sun. We're having new versions of old arguments. Yeah, it, it always comes back to Eisenhower. Um but you know, everything, all roads lead to Ike. So, so I mean, here you have the you, you know you articulated that you know the the national security strategy does envision 
great power con- uh, competition between the U.S. And, and China, and we're certainly seeing that play out. Um, yet, as you mentioned, it requires alliances. It requires strong investment in the existing international liberal order. But there's an argument to be made, and I'll make the argument for this in third person, uh, that, uh, you know, the U.S. is not sort of nurturing those alliances, you know, you know, mm. leaving the JCPOA, leaving the Paris Accord, you know, um, trying to defund certain parts of, of the UN system is, sure. is, is not sort of solidifying those alliances. It's in fact denigrating them. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think it's more of a mixed bag than that. I think in certain cases, particularly in the Middle East, the Trump administration has done enormous work to restore our relationship with our traditional regional allies. I mean, the Obama administration's strategy in the Middle East was one of rapprochement with Iran, which is our traditional ally, at the expense of all our traditional allies, both Israel and the Sunni Arab Gulf states. Right now, the Trump administration is quite uh, astutely, in my opinion, harnessing the historic level of cooperation between the Sunni Arab Gulf states and the Israelis in opposition to Iran. So in that case, I think he's actually restored and enhanced our alliances in the region. In Asia, it's probably a bit more nuanced. There are certainly a lot of countries that are welcoming renewed attention, and leaders of those countries have close personal relationships with Trump himself. Um, And then in Europe, I think, is probably where there's the biggest question mark, right? There's a disparity between some of the statements we've seen from the president himself on Twitter and some of the speeches that have been made um, by the president in uh, in Europe itself, some speeches that talk beautifully about Western values and Western alliances and things like that. But I do think there is a little bit of uncertainty, particularly when it pertains to NATO, which you know I, I think is a mistake. I think we need to have a conversation about modernizing NATO. And certainly every president since Eisenhower, to bring it back to Ike, has urged our allies to do more and contribute more to their own defense. But there does seem to be, and I was struck by this when I went to the Munich Security Conference, sort of a certain level of personal um, I don't want to say animosity, but for lack of a better term, unease between us and some of our traditional allies like the Germans. And that I think that's counterproductive over the long term. I think we need to focus on who our av- shared adversaries are. In that case, it's Russia. Uh, China, I think, is our greatest adversary. And in the Middle East, the umbrella, you know, that or, you know, the long pole in the tent that keeps us all under that tent is the threat from Iran. Um, so on on China, um, you are sponsoring or have sponsored, I'm, I'm not sure which, uh, a resolution legislation to uh, impose certain restrictions on the transfer of technologies that could be used to abrogate the rights of, of Uyghur uh, Muslims, right? In, in, in terms of um, certain like facial recognition and other technologies that Silicon Valley has provided to the Chinese government. Could you talk a little bit about what that legislation entails? Well, the Uyghur Act uh, would mandate that the U.S. government create a, well, there's, there's a few different things. There's a Uyghur Act, which would mandate that the U.S. government create a website for confidential reporting of harassment or surveillance by CCP agents, Chinese Communist Party agents. Uh, it would uh, also use information gathered from this website to help inform law enforcement of credible allegations of unlawful harassment or surveillance that would violate U.S. law. And there's separate legislation I have that would restrict any U.S. technology uh, that could be used in surveillance technology uh, by the Chinese. And so basically, my belief is that what we're seeing in Xinjiang, where the Chinese Communist Party has a concentration camp with over 100 Uyghur Muslims, is a harbinger of things to come. Or really, it's rather um, a testbed for their 
totalitarian surveillance state, um, in a way in which they intend to use technology to exert total social control over their own citizens and eventually export that technology throughout the world. And they've tried to do in subtle cases in places like Venezuela and other places around the world. And I think, you know, regardless of whether or not you feel that we should do something about that or criticize the Chinese Communist Party, I think we can do a better job of ensuring that none of our technology and the work of our best and brightest goes to facilitate what is a human rights strategy, a tragedy and abomination. So I, I completely agree with everything you just said. I hope that that legislation passes. It seems like it's something that it's sort of interesting where you have this confluence, a political confluence of, of um, you know, People on both sides of the aisle who, for various reasons, um, are you know willing to engage on Chinese human rights issues now in ways that we hadn't seen in the past, which I think is sort of an interesting political wrinkle. Yeah, it really. You know, I've actually been struck by at a time of intense partisan division on Capitol Hill. Right, um, the amount of I, I actually think there's a lot of bipartisanship around this issue, at least in the Armed Services Committee. I think a lot of my colleagues on the right and the left are thinking. Well, what is Congress's role when it comes to competing strategically like China? And this is a case, I think, um, as was the case with the Soviet Union, particularly during the Reagan administration, where our uh, where, where human rights concerns are in alignment with our broader strategic concerns, um, where, you know, sometimes in the Middle East, we're forced to make painful trade-offs between our values and our sort of more ruthless security interests. But this is not the case when it comes to China, because we can talk loudly about their human rights abuses and get a strategic effect at the same time. Um, I'm just reviewing, I had written an essay about uh, Reagan's speech in 1988 at Moscow State and reviewing some of the archival transcripts for that and the way in which George Shultz was preparing Reagan for this, which was the fourth and final summit. And he talks about all the things he wants Reagan to bring up, you know, bilateral issues, regional issues like Afghanistan's and iron arms control. But the first thing he tells Reagan to bring up is human rights. And he tells the president, oh, yeah, of course, Gorbachev's going to object. Of course, Gorbachev's going to point out the fact, you know, that there are citizens in the United States who don't get treated that well. But you need to reject the moral equivalence. And this all goes back to NSDD 75, you know, his strategic document at the beginning of his administration, which talked about waging ideological warfare from the premise of affirming the superiority of Western values. And I do think success against the Chinese over the long term is going to require us to figure out how we talk about human rights and our values uh, in a way that's a distinct contrast to the model that the Chinese Communist Party is advancing. Uh, I mean, do you think or, or have you noticed um, if there is any sort of blowback against the U.S. Uh, ability to profess its commitments to human rights, to um, press human rights in other countries, when we have, you know, these sort of abominations happening, you know, here. I mean, the latest outrage is obviously the the tragedy unfolding on the border. Um, you know, there's you know, Donald Trump's call to ban Muslims from coming to the U.S. There are these, like, any number of examples in recent weeks, even, of instances in which uh, what are historically American values have been undermined by the actions or statements of the administration. As As a policymaker, has that undermined or devalued your ability to press other countries on their human rights issues, or has it made a difference? Uh, not at all, because at the end of the day, you know, obviously in the U.S., we have a messy political system that's by design. It's a feature, not a bug uh, of our system. And certainly our history is rife with mistakes and failures and where we've fall, fallen short. But 
America has unquestionably been and continues to be a force for good in this world. We're an incredibly generous country. Um, and I know there's a lot of complaints about the fact that we spend so much on our military and the rest of the world doesn't. Uh, we do that in part because it's in our own interest, but it provides an enormous service to the rest of the world. We are the leader of the free world. And to paraphrase, I think how Secretary Mattis put it quite beautifully, or maybe it was Dunford, I don't know, one of those Marines. Um, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we aren't the perfect guys, but we are the good guys. And that remains true today, um, notwithstanding the political division and some of the more nasty fights we're having domestically in the country. So, so finally, I, I have to ask, um, how do you think President Eisenhower would judge Trump's foreign policy so far? Well, I think it's fair to say uh, that Eisenhower, well, he'd be like, what the hell is Twitter? Um, but uh, I, I, th I think you know, Eisenhower, who was a master of um, using the press and, and in a strategic way and, and sometimes making himself look bad in order to create strategic ambiguity, I think would scratch his head at, at some of the communication. Uh, I, I tend to think Twitter is making everybody stupid, um, including myself, who has to engage with it. Um, and the less of it we use, the better. Um, I think Eisenhower would quite like what we've done in the last two years to not only throw more money at the military, but to modernize the military. because We're still spending less than what the Cold War average was. Um, and I think Eisenhower would no probably... What's it? <laughs> it's true. Um, although we, we won that one. Peace dividend. Well, that's right. That, well, and then we retrenched <laughs> and then we created a vacuum. Yeah. And that vacuum flowed a lot of things we don't like. That's yeah. um, why defense spending looks like a sine curve over time. Um, but I, I think Eisenhower really was a master of using his military experience to convince the American people to go along with something that they may have been at first uncomfortable with. So I think Eisenhower would have been a much more forceful advocate for staying engaged, staying forward engaged in the world so that we don't allow crises to devolve in a major war. And also talking with the American people about the value of having allies and friends to work with on the stage. I know there's a more populist impulse in our politics right now, but it's incumbent upon our leaders to make the case for, you know, why we want to stay uh, the world's sole superpower and why the world that we've built is a far more peaceful world than the one in which China and Russia want to build. Well, Congressman, thank you so much for your time. Good luck. Hey, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Congressman Gallagher. That was helpful. And um, yeah, I feel like I should tell you guys how, how this uh, episode came about. I, you know, I know a lot of policymakers, people around the Hill, Capitol Hill in Washington, that is, listen to the show and his team reached out and uh, glad to have made this work. So thank you all. Thank you to his team. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Bye. And if you're still listening, that means you should definitely support the show on Patreon. Follow the links in the description field of this podcast episode or go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. Help me bring more episodes like this to listeners like you and around the world. I will see you next time. Bye.